We are kicking things off with a word from our sponsor. The new streaming service, Film Movement Plus, opens a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best films from around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are some of the best films from 2020, including The Wild Goose Lake, Zombie Child, and more. Available on Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, as well as streaming online and on mobile, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But as a listener of Watch with Jen, Film Movement Plus will give you a 30-day free trial plus the next three months at 50% off when you use the promo code WATCHWITHJEN, all one word. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. And coming this July to Film Movement Plus are a dozen new films, including an Olympic salute to the Summer Games featuring the powerful sports documentary Over the Limit, the boxing documentary Hands of God, which follows the Iraqi national boxing team and executive produced by Oscar winner Alfonso Coron, and Koza, Goat, a Slovakian drama starring former Olympians, as well as Roman Bondarchuk's Volcano, Nanny Moretti's Khan Award winner Caro Diario, Kathy Yon's feature film debut Dead Pigs, and the North American premiere of the campy film within a film, Holy Beast, starring Geraldine Chapman and Udo Kier. All of these will be debuting over the course of July on Film Movement Plus. Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and Film Intuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Today I am so pleased to welcome back the lovely, very funny, and terribly sweet Stephanie Crawford, a talented film writer and podcaster with an infectious love of cinema and physical media. You can check out Stephanie's work at her personal website, House of a Reasonable Amount of Horrors, or H-O-A-R-A-O-H.com. Stephanie, thank you so much for being here again. It's long overdue. How are you doing and how is summer going? Uh, well, I just want to say thank you for having me again and dealing with that acronym. That was incredibly brave of you. <laughs> I know. I was like so prepared to have to say it like five times. but <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, I never know how to answer that question. Yeah, right now, I'm doing it's like... fine, but as we know, with all of us behind, the fine is so much going on. But yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just glad to have you back. And I saw you completed an interview recently with one of our mutuals, the crime writer Dwayne Swearsinski. So what else have you been working on lately? Are there any recent works or projects on the horizon that you would like us to be on the lookout for? Um, no, I'm kind of at the period uh, with my writing right now where I'm kind of regrouping. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I need a break uh, just to watch things, research mm -hmm. things, take notes to myself and be like, okay, what direction do I want to go now? 
Yeah, I think those are important to do. Like, I'll do the same thing where uh, you need those breaks to recharge and also just see what you want to write about because there's so much stuff and you don't know what direction you want to go in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I, I found myself stuck in that thing where you have a lot of screeners in your email and you're like, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Do Will I have anything to really say of value about these? And then I start questioning everything. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, th- thank you for backing me up on that. Because even though you know you're working and you're thinking hard about it, you can feel kind of lazy if you're not specifically yes. working on something. No, I'm the same way. Like recently I, I watched, uh, what was it called? The Loneliest Whale. And I, I was like excited. And then I'm like, do I have anything of value to add about the loneliest whale? Probably not. Like, you know, you kind of have to hold off until something clicks with you. That kind of thing. No offense to the loneliest whale, of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Well, last time you were on the podcast, we talked about a lot of things, but especially we bonded over our love of musicals, like Singing in the Rain. While we were trying to come up with a theme for the episode, I sort of pitched it as a jumping off point for some sort of fun, bright, summery episode. And soon I realized that Stephanie might be the perfect person to celebrate the brand new, gorgeous 4K release of Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous with. Using that as our first choice, she came up with a cool approach of rock music movies across the decades. If Almost Famous represents the 70s, then Tom Hanks' directorial debut, That Thing You Do, is a great representation of the 60s. The iconic Prince Rock movie, Purple Rain, from director Albert Magnoli, was a clever way to approach the 80s. So we're going to go into the films deeper in a minute, but before we do that, what is it about music in the movies that you find so irresistible? Well, uh, I am a big fan of music, which uh, it's kind of like saying I like eating food, I feel like almost. But uh, uh, when I was a preteen and started seriously getting into music, I fell down a hole of, um, you know, uh, trying to hunt down uh, rare music and finding zines because that was back in the zine time period. And um, a, a great translation of the love of music uh, is, of course, film. Um, also, it's um, I became obsessed with music videos, mm-hmm. um, very obsessed with music videos. <laughs> so um, I, I just love trying to balance the excitement and virility of the music with uh, the aesthetics and the storytelling you need to make it work in a film landscape. Mm-hmm. Um So when it doesn't work, it really hurts because you'll hear about a band having an amazing journey. And then when you see it on the big screen, I was hoping Walk Hard would solve this problem of everyone using the template that everyone uses. Unfortunately, it hasn't quite died out yet. But when it works, when it hits, like I I think it does with these films we're going to talk about today. Um, it's transcendent. Um, I tend to revisit these movies far more than um, any other movies I truly love and revisit mm-hmm. a lot. It's like listening to an album you love. Yeah. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah. And you brought up music videos. What were some of your favorites when you were younger? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, well, this is back when uh, MTV and VH1 actually showed videos. So I would just yes. be a dedicated viewer. But 
favorites uh I always loved the Foo Fighter ones because they're so funny and so strange yeah Yeah. I remember the the one that was like the commercial I can't think was it Everlong or what was that one um Big Me I think Big Me okay yeah (laughs) um and then uh Palm Pictures uh they used to do those great DVD sets of like uh Michelle Gondry's music videos and like Michael Cunningham yeah yeah I wore those (laughs) too and the criterion beastie boys because i'm a huge beastie boys fan so i love that so uh yeah even if the song was kind of if it had a sense of humor or was doing making its own kind of self-contained film that would draw me in yeah no that's a really good point well while we usually go through the movies chronologically in order of their release for this episode it definitely makes sense to discuss them chronologically by time period. So that would be That Thing You Do from 96, which takes place in 1964, 2000's Almost Famous, which opens in 69, but primarily takes place around 73. And then Purple Rain, which is the one contemporarily made and set movie released and taking place in and around 1984. A warning before we begin, there's a good possibility we'll be going into some spoilers today. So if you haven't seen these movies, do proceed with caution or give them a look before you press play on the rest of this episode. So on that note, starting in 1996, we have actor-turned-writer-director Tom Hanks' infectious cult favorite, That Thing You Do, which chronicles the rise and fall of a one-hit wonder band in 1964, made up of a quartet of young men from Erie, Pennsylvania, and starring Tom Everett Scott, Jonathan Sheck, Steve Zahn, Ethan Embry, Liv Tyler, and Tom Hanks, one of my favorites, since I inadvertently wandered into a theater showing it back in 96 after... Romeo and Juliet by Baz Luhrmann left me with a whopper of a headache after only 10 minutes. I liked it at home, though, I promise. (laughs) That thing you do is the film equivalent of sunshine. I was so excited to finally watch Tom Hanks' longer cut of the movie prompted by Stephanie, which is available digitally, and it adds about 30 to 40 minutes of the storyline. So I was excited for that. And I know you're a fan of the movie as well. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this special film. It is a special film. I saw it in theaters with my mom. Uh, We saw the trailer. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I listened to almost exclusively uh, classic pop and rock when I was a kid because it was the only thing my parents could stand. They didn't. (laughs) So I listened to a lot. Yeah, like a lot of Beach Boys, a lot of Motown. Um, Yeah. So this was very much in our, uh, our lane. But... Um, yeah, it is just maybe the most charming film ever made. <laughs> it's at least it on the top yeah. of the list. Yeah, it's almost like Tom Hanks uh, took his incredibly likable reputation and just translated it <laughs> into celluloid. And yeah. it it just permeates the whole thing. It's just uh, joyful without being saccharine. It's really sweet without being manipulative. It's genuinely very funny, uh, especially Steve Zahn, who... Oh my God, he kills. A man in a really nice camper. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get that blue ribbon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know. I love it. Yeah, it is so good. And there was this thing on Twitter this week 
Uh, I was trying to find it. And of course I can't at the moment, but it basically implied like, what is the one scene that makes you smile the most in movies? And why is it Liv Tyler, you know, listening to the radio and hearing their song for the first time running down the street. And it's so true when they first hear for those listening, it's when um, they're frantically listening to all the different um, radio stations, trying to hear their song over the radio. And she hears it while she's getting ready to mail some letters and goes running down the street into um, the electronic store or the appliance store that Guy Patterson's family owns. And they're all, they all gather there and it's so exciting and just so jubilant and just makes you feel like, you know, you could fly. It is very good. I know. Yeah. They translate that excitement so well. Yes. And this cast is amazing. They really gelled. Yeah. Um, last year when Adam Schlesinger died, uh, tragically, yes. they did a fundraiser for him and they, they did a, like a video reunion commentary and, uh, they're still incredible. They're still close friends. It, it was wonderful seeing that. Yeah. I remember. Um, and it's always cool on, on Twitter where somebody will bring it up and then they might, um, you know, tag, uh, usually it's Ethan Embry or something. And then he'll gather the rest of the cast. And it's sort of like sending out a bat signal, how much <laughs> they know that this movie means to people. And it seems to mean that much to them. And it's genuine. You said a really good thing about how it's not like manipulative or too saccharine. Cause that's kind of the, you know, like in Down With Love, for example, which takes place in the 60s and sort of a play on it, which is a fun movie, but it's also a satire of those movies at the same time. This is not. It's basically like it was made in the 60s and it is very, very genuine. Like you don't feel like he's winking at the audience or, hey, this was cheesy back then. It's, you know, this was happening music made people happy. This was kind of their answers to the Beatles at the time, or this is before they came over and we were just trying to feast on that excitement and what music does and it brings people together. And yeah, there's really, it's like lightning in a bottle. This thing doesn't happen that much, but it really happened for this movie. Yeah, I think it benefited from uh, hindsight and letting it be its own thing. Because, yeah, I love Down With Love, but it very oh, yeah. much was a pound for pound Doris Day, Rock Hudson riff. So if yeah. you didn't already love those movies, yeah, it might not quite hit for you. But this one, it's, um, yeah, it, it's, it's almost uh, like your dad is telling you the story about yes. this band. Like, oh, I grew up in Erie, PA. We had an interesting one-hit wonder band at, at some point. Um, yeah, it, it's um, see, uh, like Purple Rain. Just to jump mm -hmm. ahead a smidge, incredibly Perfect. melodramatic. Yes. This one, there's really no drama. Uh, no. It is a one-hit wonder band. There is a little bit of infighting, but it's just young men uh right mm -hmm. when they're pretty much going to figure out their first big adult step into the world and they're all stepping in different directions <laughs> yeah i know that's really something too because this would have been um just like right on the cusp of when we were getting into vietnam and we have a character in the movie that's uh going to join the military and uh, guy patterson in the longer cut of the movie you find out he had just gotten out of the military like 
there was more to it. And so it's these people trying to figure out what they want to do. Um, guy loves music, but his family has the appliance store. And so he's going to do that. And they thought, you know, let's just try this. And Guy sort of just fills in. I love that it was kind of accidental. The whole movie, and especially in the longer cut of the film, you really get a sense of, and again, just what you were saying, like in a different film, it would have been a much more melodramatic subplot. But like the poor um, drummer who got left out of the the whole experience basically because he was jumping over hydrants <laughs> and whatever it was and fell the and, pete best yes and so uh yeah so he missed out on the experience but you know he just goes and gets a job at the appliance store maybe dates the sister we don't really know but uh yeah it's it's just a nice film about these people in this small town yeah yeah, um, really, uh, I, I suspect directors who are actors like Tom Hanks are especially good at casting and paying attention yes. to chemistry. This one, uh, if you are into a big complex plot, okay, it might be a little <laughs> slow for you. But yeah. if you're like me and you love character journeys yes. and great dialogue and just amazing interactions, uh Oh, this one, it's just, it's like a warm blanket. It's never boring. Yeah. The jokes still hit for me. I still love hearing the music. And I had that soundtrack. I listen to that thing all the time. (laughs) And it has everything. I know. And it's more than just, everybody talks about the title track. And it's very catchy and irresistible. But there's other great songs in the film. And even, like, the supporting players or the the Playtone galaxy of stars have their own sounds. And you can kind Kind of, okay, this one's the Dusty Springfield or the whatever. And yeah, all these songs are just so much fun to listen to. Exactly. I've had Mr. Downtown stuck in my head all week. I'm not okay. mad about it. It's fine. No, yeah, it is fine. And um, just wonderful chemistry. Exactly. So beyond Steve Zahn, do you have any like favorite scenes or moments? Uh, the whole film. Yeah. Pretty much. It's my favorite, like, sick day movie, basically. You know, there's that big question of, like, what do you watch when you're sick? And this is kind of the ultimate sick day movie. Like, it's going to make you feel good. It's not too, like, not too taxing where you have to really think about, you know, who's Kaiser Soze or you're not, you're not, like, thinking about that for a movie that also came out around that time. But yeah, this one, you're just, like, on an adventure and hey, yeah. Um, though I, I am especially fond of the buildup to when they're making their first album, which is just a little indie album they're putting out. They get yeah. uh, the uncle who records church things to do it for them. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they, they make the deal in that camper. Yeah. I'm oh, signing. You're signing. We're all signing. We're all signing. Yes. <laughs> and just uh, having them sling that at, at the pizza joint during their shows, like, because I've dated musicians and I've, I've yeah, yeah I, I've, I've run the merch table and I, I know what that's like. And I, it just translated that really well. Um, no, it, it's just so delightful. And I also uh, love Tom Hanks, obviously loves this time period. And he yeah. had so many... Um, space program and like nasa references in i know it's completely built into the movie and you can see his love (laughs) of nasa and space and he had just done apollo 13 i think that was 95 so 
around this time. So it was very fresh in his mind. Yeah. 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 Even Brian Cranston playing an astronaut when he played a different yes. astronaut for him later on. I don't know um, why that didn't sink in until my last viewing. I'm like, oh my God, it's Brian Cranston. Yes. Yeah. See, there's always something to discover. Yes. Um, but I loved his recreations of the TV shows, um, especially in the extended version. Um, well, I, I'm pretty sure it's in the theatrical. They have a Beatles uh, parody band played by chimpanzees, and they're just training them to move their uh, mouths so it sounds like it's the Beatles singing. And then um, after it, a uh, guy's running through. They don't know where the bass player is. And he, when he passes the band, he's like, can that chimp actually play bass? Never mind. <laughs> he keeps going. And just little moments like that. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it, it's just so much fun. I know. And the fashion, Liv Tyler was just okay. delightful. Uh, <laughs> I love her in this movie. She yes. So good. Yeah. No, um, her big breakup scene, that that's not a happy oh. scene, but good Lord, do you feel it? That is She delivers that whole <laughs> speech. And it might be like a little cutesy like if you were reading it on paper you know I've given you thousands of kisses that I thought meant something and you know I think on paper it's one thing but you hear Liv Tyler say that to Jonathan Sheck and you're like you bastard yes yeah her her voice yeah. getting gravelly yes. the tears in her eyes no I oh. I was I still love her but I was very obsessed with her uh, Empire Records is like my favorite movie so having two cast members <laughs> uh, Ethan Embry and Liv and Tyler and this Tyler. was incredible yeah. um no and it's you know it's a pretty much a guy movie she's kind of the stock uh, girlfriend character yes. especially in the extended uh version she's uh it's really underlined that she's an important person just because yeah. you're not in a band doesn't mean you're not important but that's kind of how you're always going to be perceived mm -hmm. and when she um eventually ends up with guy throughout the movie uh he's just planting those seeds that he sees her as a person he values her input when yeah. her boyfriend doesn't really care he, pretty much takes her for granted and it has everything this movie have a little romance a yeah. little love triangle <laughs> along with the humor yeah the thing that got me this time with their relationship that I mean I've heard the line before but there was something about this version maybe watching the longer cut and seeing her with Guy and all the interactions was um you know she's so proudly in the scene and it is in the shorter version the theatrical cut tells uh, Tom Hanks that they'd been dating for two years or two and a half years. And um, later when they go backstage, this might be one of the first scenes where we interact with Tom Hanks and he says like, who is Faye? And um, Shaq says something like, well, she's kind of like my girlfriend or something like she's kind of my girlfriend. And you're just like, no. Whereas uh, through the entire movie, Guy is the one that sees her and has to go back and like physically help her get in the car when all the girls are crawling all over it in that great scene <laughs> where Steve Zahn's freaking out like, crawl on the car. <laughs> yes, he's the one that intervenes and he's the one who wants to make sure that she's included in um, all the shout outs to the band. Like we've got Faye and... Yeah, like she's an integral uh, part of it. And I love that. Yeah, just because you're bringing us our lunch doesn't mean that's all you do. That's not yes. your role. <laughs> so yeah, it, you really end up rooting for them. Um, yeah, yep. She's the Shex and Tyler's lips. 
uh, are like freakishly sensual and work well together, but <laughs> which is probably a weird thing to say, but I don't know. I always look at actors' lips for some reason. Um, You're not alone. Mir Nair has said that. She said that <laughs> when she casts movies, she always looks for people with very sensual or bigger lips. And she then she like took a shot at Kenneth Branagh, like out of left field. And she said, so Kenneth Branagh, you might be like one of the best actors ever. You're not going to be in my movies. And it was like, wow. <laughs> He's just at home listening. Like, I knew I should have gotten those fillers. Yes, I know. He's watching it. He's thinking about Goldie Hawn and First Wives Club going, maybe I should do that. No. <laughs> those lip fillers. Got to be in a Mirror Nightmare movie. But no, yeah, Liv Tyler just stunning in this movie and yeah so she kind of she and Jonathan Sheck look like like the mod squad basically walking down the street or they would be um like Delon and Bardo essentially but yeah yeah, yeah. and Charlize Theron too very small part a lot bigger in the extended version but she's just that yeah yeah and she was the more cute I thought she looked fantastic well of course she looks fantastic but her look was great too but it was more the traditional the more classic 60s ladies ready to be a housewife where Faye was more you know you could see her running a music conservatory later on yeah she was a little bit um left of center yeah whereas uh Charlie's your own's character is very much ready to be yeah a lady who lunches but what I liked about the extended cut um, and what's interesting is I could see myself watching the theatrical cut of this just as much whereas almost famous I need to watch bootleg or the un, um, yeah. yeah untitled the longer untitled. cut this one I could see both but what I did like a lot more was Thrones character um, seemed more villainous in the theatrical cut like yeah and in this one it's just no they're just not a good fit she's not evil or anything to guys she just meets somebody else and they click a little better and just you know like most people when they're dating people it's like you're trying new people on and do we fit no yeah yeah, it's, it's pretty much what happens with the Oneaters. Sorry, the Wonders, yes. where they're not, uh, it's not that they're horrific people who hate each other and they no. can't wait to get away. It's just we're, we want different things. We're going in yes. different directions. Oh, that's a really good comparison. Yeah. Do you have anything else you'd like to add on this one? I will say um, the extended version, I think, is incredible, but don't see it first. And I like that you said you would return to the theatrical. I'm the same way. The theatrical is great. It's the pacing's pretty much perfect. You're not getting ripped off from anything. But the extended version one is incredibly long. It is. um, For this kind of movie. A little bit. Yeah. It really is kind of a super fan cut. So if you see the theatrical version and you love it, you will love the extended. uh, But please don't start with the extended. No, that's an excellent point. And I did love what you were pointing out too. And I'd heard this before, which is that the Tom Hanks character in the the film is gay. And you um, see that side of him in the extended cut just a little bit i mean they don't really it's not like a major part of the plot but i love that he is a three-dimensional person instead of just mr white the guy who keeps telling them they look great in gold or red or whatever kind of suits (laughs) they're wearing that day and so i did like that yeah 
Oh, that does remind. That is one of my favorite scenes. Following uh, the scene in the jazz club with Rita Wilson and every oh, all the musicians, fantastic yeah. scene. And that's such a great cap to it. Just a drunk guy kind of watching this, and you yes. see him smile a little when he sees uh, what him and he's a football player, right? Howie Long, who Howie plays Long. his boyfriend yeah. in it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought that was great. <laughs> that was nice. And yeah. he looks kind of like a sixties astronaut. So it all comes together. <laughs> yeah. There you go. It's the Hanks type. No. It's <laughs> yeah. He has a type. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Who doesn't sixties astronauts. Come on. They have the right <laughs> stuff. No. Now that's a haircut. You can set your watch to. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And we're going from one favorite to the next here with Cameron Crowe's largely autobiographical masterpiece, Almost Famous, which is centered on Patrick Fugit's young, precocious 15-year-old William Miller growing up in San Diego in the early 1970s when the exceptionally bright young man discovers rock and roll music care of his older sister's record collection. He begins to write so passionately about the subject that his writing catches the attention of first Lester Bangs, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman of Cream Magazine, and then Ben Fong Torres of Rolling Stone, played by Terry Chen. Given an assignment to write about the mid-level fictional band Stillwater, headed up by Jason Lee and Billy Crudup, he joins them on the road along with a cadre of young groupies, no make that band-aids, led by Kate Hudson's Penny Lane leaving his strict, loving mother, a college professor played by Frances McDormand behind. William steps out of everyone's shadow and finds himself along the way. Tender, funny, bittersweet, and so insanely rewatchable. This film, like Tom Hanks's, also has two distinct versions, the shorter theatrical cut plus the longer quote-unquote bootleg edition that clocks in at two hours and 40 minutes and goes by the name of Untitled and I think actually flies right by. While I can see the pros and cons of the longer that thing you do cut, as we mentioned, this one, it's very clear that once you see the longer edition, there's really no going back. Even Paramount included both versions in the new 4K release of Almost Famous. Stephanie, I know you love this movie as well, so I'd love to hear your history with the movie and thoughts on Almost Famous. I saw your tweet about this, and I think we kind of have a similar thing. So when this came out, uh, I had just joined the school newspaper and my dream was to write for Rolling Stone magazine. Oh, really? I love it, that. Very specifically Rolling Stone. This oh. was back when I was really getting into music. And I was loving writing for this school newspaper because our teacher, she took it seriously. She taught oh, us cool. we had to follow every rule of journalism, like a, a real paper. And she was yeah. very adamant about that, that we learn it through. And uh, I think that encouraged me, for better or for worse, uh, to think I was on the road to becoming a real journalist. Mm -hmm. And um, I just saw the trailer for this. I saw this young kid writing for Rolling Stone magazine <laughs> and with a band that looked like Led Zeppelin, who I was super into at the time. Yes. And I saw this with my mom. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I, I remember it, it's one of those vivid memories I have walking out of a film 
and the night air seemed more crisp and the stars seemed brighter. And I just felt like I had the entire world in front of me. Mm, I love that so much. I saw this one with my dad, actually, because he was a big um, 70s music guy. Oh, and cool. So, uh, I remember seeing it with him. But for me, uh, I think my tweet was talking about how I've never seen myself reflected on screen more than in two Cameron Crowe movies. This one with the Patrick Fugit character and Say Anything with Ioni Sky. I was like one of those nerds like Ioni Sky where I started college early. For me, it was 16. And so, um, so it was like around older people all the time, but still felt like a kid. And wow. <laughs> um, also was maybe tighter with like my parents or older, like my brother and his friends who were all older. And so I felt a little bit more like I was probably like the Ioni Sky character or this where you're sort of then when you're around people and you're trying to be cool and you know you'll never be cool and uh, you get access to people and situations and professional things where you're like, but I'm still a kid at heart. And so I always loved that about these uh, movies. Uh, for me, I mean, I love music. I played music when I was a girl, not very well. Um, but for me, what do you play? I played um, piano and viola. Oh, what did you play? Did you play anything? Nothing. I always told my parents, I wish you forced me to take lessons in something because oh. I dream of being able to play. But when I tried to pick up guitar later in life, oh, my brain, nah. I was having guitar it too and I could never do it oh yeah I know at one of my best friends uh growing up could play anything and um, yeah I was always very jealous of Amy's ability she was like in a studio musician and they would just call her in and like hey we need someone on violin that day and she would just do it oh that's and, great uh, yeah I know so I loved that and I was very jealous but for me it was um a love of film and being kind of precocious and writing about all these things early. And so I always loved that about these films. Um, I remember seeing this and just loving it. I think I might have gone back to the theater to see this like three or four times. And it became like the movie that my brother and I would watch or my friends and I would watch just all the time. So it's kind of like what you were saying exactly with uh, that thing you do where it's like listening to your favorite album. Uh, watching Almost Famous, you want to go on this journey again with William. And yeah, I just, I love it. Were you drawn to the cast? What was it about it? Just mainly that it was music and you loved Led Zeppelin and writing or um, were you, did you know any of the cast at all at the time or were they still kind of unknown? Um, I knew Jason Lee. Okay, uh, from yeah. Kevin Smith movies, because I was yes. a big Kevin Smith fan when yes. I was young. Um, but I think that's it. Yeah, um, it was really uh, just the plot and it looked great. And as I watched it, um, you know, I was just blown away. It's this beautiful film, uh, perfectly cast again, <laughs> something that has in common, just incredible. Um, and it all my fantasies of what it would have been like to have been like a Lester Bangs type in there. Like this is the most <laughs> idealized version of yeah. it. And the music is incredible. I think Stillwaters, the, the fictional band they portray in it, 
I love their songs. I do too. Yeah. Most <laughs> of them were like written by Nancy Wilson. Yeah. And she, yeah. she, yeah. And she was the composer. So even the, the instrumental music is very beautiful and very moving. It is. And then of course, just the brilliant use of the great songs like Tiny Dancer from back then. It is a music lover's dream, not just because yeah. it's about a band in the seventies, but this is a film that deeply respects every aspect of uh, music. Yeah. And that's something like you've seen basically in all of the Cameron Crowe movies, there's always a moment where somebody is going through something in life and they want to sing along to a song like in uh, say anything. It's John Mahoney, Ricky, don't lose your uh, my number. <laughs> and then um, I love that moment in Jerry Maguire where he's like trying to find the right song on the radio for it and finally finds Free Fallen. I mean, and here we have Tiny Dancer. Yeah, it's perfect. So that scene um, with uh, Kate Hudson's Penny Lane, it's such a beautiful scene where it's after a big show yeah. and she's just dancing on the rose petals that were like left from the fans, throwing them on stage. And it has a Cat Stevens, the wind playing. Oh, it's so beautiful, isn't it? I decided I wanted that to be the song playing at my funeral. Oh, because of that scene. Wow. <laughs> because of that scene you know what that scene reminds me of I mean a lot of Crow's movies reminds me remind me of Billy Wilder but that for whatever reason kind of brings or evokes this whole uh, Sabrina moment of um, Audrey Hepburn I don't know if it was on the tennis courts or dancing but there's something about that where you can just see him linking those two maybe in his mind of uh, the way that Penny Lane carries herself or the way he captures her. There's like this Audrey Hepburn quality. I love it. Oh, yeah, that's a great observation. I think you're right. I think both filmmakers value those quiet moments where, mm -hmm. no, it's not moving the plot forward, but you're getting kind of a, a great insight into the inner life of that character. And that informs everything they do moving on. So, mm -hmm. you know, you can imagine like some ruthless people saying like, ah, cut it, slows it down. <laughs> it's like, no, this is actually probably one of the most important scenes in the film. Yes. And you talk about the cast. This is a movie that has a lot of plot. Sure. Uh, well, it's it's more like character driven plot, though. So it's kind of mm -hmm. the perfect marriage of that. But the chemistry is just ideal. And like one of my favorite scenes in the whole, I mean, I can pretty much do the entire movie like verbatim. But I love the band t-shirt fight when uh, the band gets their <laughs> t-shirt. You love this t-shirt. Like, how can you tell? I'm just one of the out of focus guys. Yeah, but what do I know? I'm one of the out of focus, focus guys. <laughs> yeah, I know. I love it so much. And um, yeah, like this t-shirt, it lets you say everything you want to say. <laughs> uh, that's another kind of Cameron Crowe trademark of the declaration of we're about to say what we want to say, or let's say the things we never said, or that's another thing that he likes to come back to throughout. And I just, I eat it up every time because maybe I'm a little dramatic in my speechifying too. But yeah, I love the, like the infighting of this band. But they, at the end of the day, they love each other. Another great sequence is the, the almost plane crash. 
<laughs> yeah, the Leonard yes. Skinner. Oh God, <laughs> yes. <laughs> have to oh hash it out God. now. It's perfect, right? Like you know, the poor guy. Damn it, I'm gay or whatever. Yeah. No, it. Because yeah. <laughs> there's so many ways for that scene not to work at all. Because it's kind no. of histrionic. Of yeah. course, a potential plane crash is incredibly dramatic. Um, Especially, but, yeah. Yeah, but it just it is pure cinema to kind of use that phrase. Like, yeah. yes, it's heightened. But the the film had spent its entire runtime earning this with uh, setting these characters up, setting up the strained relationships, bringing in the absent wife who clearly isn't happy with anything going on. So it's just this explosion of emotion that's cathartic, but it's also really funny. But you're also like, oh, God this band has to be over after this, right? Mm-hmm. How do you come back? No, it, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's one of the many, many reasons why this film works so much. It, it gives you those like meaty, memorable moments to chew over. It does. The other thing I love about it is that it seems to really pay off and justify like what you were saying, like it spent the entire running time kind of getting to that moment same thing with um it makes you value vanilla sky his next movie in a new way because in a strange way it's like you can tell that he was thinking about the penny lane character or the lies that people tell each other when they go to bed together and it's supposed to be a just casual situation well you know it's i mean it is a remake of Aubrey los ojos vanilla sky but you can see why some of these issues that he was bringing up and working with with Almost Famous were still kind of percolating there and went into uh, Vanilla Sky. So I always kind of consider his whole filmography to be sort of like, you know, sort of like Led Zeppelin 1, 2, 3, 4 kind of. These movies do Uh kind of complement each other. Yeah. Oh, I love that you pointed that out. Yeah, because something he uh, is so good at pointing out, it's such, so many of us know about this, but it's hard to talk about where we are with someone Mm -hmm. and we want some, maybe we both love each other, but we want something different. Yeah. But instead of confronting that, we fool them and we fool ourselves into thinking we want the right thing or yeah. we want the same thing mm-hmm. and that we're on the same page when we're not. So we're always trying to force the pages back to be on the same page, but we're not. And eventually that all comes together and it devastates us, but ultimately we're stronger and we'll move yeah. on from it. But that fight of um, like, no, no, uh, yeah, I, I'm okay being traded to a different band for a case of beer and 50 bucks. Like, I get it. I don't care when she's dying inside. It is oh. It's just devastating. That little tear. I think she just sells it right there every time i watch this movie i'm like she deserved that supporting actress oscar like my goodness i I wish she would have gotten it yeah yeah yeah, she deserved it but and william is such a great uh main character because he's not he's very much the straight man but he's not boring he has a great character arc himself but really he he's so young and such a blank uh slate at that point Mm -hmm. that 
everyone, it's not really that they're imparting wisdom, like, oh, this is what the world's really like. They're just projecting their delusions that they're trying to convince themselves on him. Like, well, he doesn't know anything. He'll stick and this will reinforce it. So yeah. the band does that. Penny Lane does that um, all yes. for different reasons. But yeah, the poor kid is just really <laughs> this uh, neuroses absorber during the whole thing. But thankfully he has this incredibly strong mom. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Yeah, he's still trying to process everything. And you can see maybe in turn, Crow is still trying to process everything. Like as far back as, say anything, Lloyd Dobler, all of his best friends are girls. Um, just like Crow had kind of hung around the real Penny Lane and all of the, the girls of the quote unquote Band-Aids or the groupies. And uh, in Jerry Maguire, we have Laurel and her sister and the divorced women's group. And then here you have William with, again, a gaggle of girls that um, kind of impart wisdom or they're trying to figure it out. He's trying to figure it out. And then well, they're like one or two years older than him. They've they just are. had way more life experience. I know. Yes. I know. Yeah. Penny is already retired. And I love that line in the longer cut. Like you're retired. Like Frank Sinatra is retired. <laughs> like this is a woman who has lived already at 16. Yes. Yeah. For better and worse, sadly, but yeah, Kate Hudson, this is a star making turn. It's kind of funny. Um, as I was watching it this week, I'm also preparing for an episode on uh, Goldie Hawn. Uh, that I'm doing with Kristen Lopez and so oh. uh, watching some of these older Goldie movies which is why like First Wives Club popped into my head last movie we were talking about I was thinking wow she went right to that reference <laughs> yeah like it's Goldie but yeah and then we we go to Kate so that was kind of a, a little interesting uh, whiplash cinematically but yeah they just have yeah. that spark those they do. And this really was kind of the perfect burst onto the scene movie because, of course, she looks a lot like her mother. So she people does. are going to make the comparison. Um, so she she really picked just the best possible script, the best possible director, the best possible cast to yes. work with. And immediately um, people stopped comparing her to her mother. I know exactly, and what I except the right out of the gate Oscar nomination, yes. but she she's respected as her own at person. If she is, and also she really earned that role because that wasn't the role like she was supposed to have. I can't remember if she was going to play the sister, I believe, or something had happened um, with an actress. Um, falling out or being changed and at the last minute they thought well we've had Kate here this whole time and she's kind of like the real life Penny Lane of this movie and supportive and so they gave her that role and it was just yeah it was perfect for her just like um when I read that uh it was supposed to be Brad Pitt in the Billy Crudup role and at the last minute um Brad and Cameron decided to part ways like mutually like yeah this isn't really working or whatever I I think you need Billy Crudup's um I mean he's very handsome to you but he's got that cantankerousness and his charm and I think he was willing to go there with his persona more maybe than maybe Brad was ready for he'd done um fight club so he kind of poked fun a little bit 
at um, his sort of, you know, movie star wattage looks. But I think I think you need crude up for this. What are your thoughts? I agree. I think Brad Pitt is an incredible actor. Yes. But uh, especially uh, what over 20 years ago now, yeah. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> he was kind of impossibly gorgeous. I think so. Yeah. Uh, Billy Crudup is a fantastic looking man, uh, but he does look like uh, the hunkier 70s musicians back then. Like the yeah. same with Jason Lee. These are good looking men, but believably good looking men. Yes. Um, yeah. This could so, be the band that you saw in your own town and all of a sudden they're becoming big. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so when you see him going uh to a house party in the Midwest, you're like, yeah, I could buy it. He, he's sick of everything being fake. He wants to get back with the real people. <laughs> real man, real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that scene of him going through that kid's room, just like looking yeah. all like all the brick of brack. Like this is real. Lampshade. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. No. Yeah. He, um, because when he's on stage, uh, like he's referred to as, uh, you're the guitarist with mystique. Yes. He is electric. Like your eyes go straight to him. Haha. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And he gets electrocuted in the movie. Um, but, yeah. Look at you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but once he's off stage and you can see he's genuinely hurt when the band feels disenfranchised with them. He's genuinely confused when William's like, no, man, I'm here for a job. I need to for I need to interview you, man. That's why I'm here. He's like, well, but we're on a rock and roll tour. <laughs> like he, he actually has a lot to do in this film. And yeah, he, he does in a very uh deceptively laid way back way where yeah. it, it seems easy, but I feel like it was probably quite a bit to process. I know it is. Yeah, he does have so much to do. I think everybody talks about, I mean, the speech of the movie is arguably, of course, Philip Seymour Hoffman's, you know, the only real currency is, yeah, what we share with one another when we're uncool. Like, I'm always home, I'm uncool. Or um, that whole sequence, which is still one of my favorite things ever, and it makes me miss PSH like so much so much (laughs) but when you watch the movie you start noticing everybody kind of has one of these moments like Jason Lee with his hey I'm incendiary too man and then his big (laughs) speech in the back about getting people off and rock and roll can save people (laughs) and then make him get off I make him get off yes and then you get uh, Fran and she's got her great moments every Everybody kind of has at least one wonderful just scene you're going to, yeah, associate with them. But how about you? Favorite moments? I know we've touched on a bunch. but Yeah. Um, well, I, I also, speaking to that a little bit, uh, uh, Zoe Deschanel, oh. her just setting this all in motion. If she yeah. didn't give him the record she was leaving behind, he would have never ended up there. And her just being encouraging like please let him know that he's two years younger than the other kids in his class and yes um like let's be normal one day you'll be cool she's just like the perfect <laughs> dream older sister I always yeah. wish I had yeah um and yeah even the smaller roles like the other band-aids Feruza Balk in it is just yes. incredible oh, and I loved her <laughs> when she fields the call from um 
Frances McDormand, uh, William's mother, Let's and she's appreciate like, appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, like he respects women. He's doing a great yeah. job. We should appreciate that. Like, yeah, it's just uh, all these moments come together, and that's why this is such a wish fulfillment film. Yeah, but it feels so real. It really feels like you're there. It does. Um. Yeah, um, we've got Anna Paquin, who I guess yeah. <laughs> uh, Patrick Fugit in some interview said that uh, Crow gave him some spoilers. And he's like, you know, in the future, did he go to Morocco? Did he see Penny again? And he's like, no. But in the future, you know, he does get involved with Palexia. I'm not surprised. Uh, yeah. And watching it after I read that, I'm starting to think, you know, she was the one that wanted to deflower the kid when they were at the hotel. She was earlier on when she was upset and I'm in love with Jeff Beebe and she starts crying and hugs him <laughs> right away. It's like they're closer in age and you can see that a little bit. Yeah. And he, uh, she's also the only other woman there besides Penny who, uh, when he sees her, he it's like this huge, genuine smile, and he's yes. really happy to see her. So, yeah, that's very subtly set up. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, it was nice to read that. Um, he's like, I have spoilers <laughs> when I, I read this interview with uh, Patrick Fugit. That was cute. <laughs> yes. Oh, such a wonderful movie. Are there any other things you'd like to add on this one? I don't know because it's one I could talk about for hours. Yeah. So I'm trying to edit myself on it essentially, (laughs) but yes. Okay. Well, moving on, I'm sure if we think of anything, we will jump back. So, and from one largely autobiographical work to another and one that was tailor made to its star, our final film is one that made Prince the pride of my birth state, Minnesota, into an internationally known icon for generations of fans. Purple Rain, which was shot on location in Minneapolis, including the film's legendary musical performances, which were executed mostly in a single week at First Ave, the rock club there. The movie was directed by reckless editor turned tango and cast director Albert Magnoli, who later became Prince's manager in real life. Written by Magnoli and William Blinn and featuring Prince's then brand new compositions, including Let's Go Crazy, When Doves Cry, as well as Darling Nikki, I Would Die For You, Baby I'm a Star, Purple Rain, and more. The film features Prince as the kid, his thinly disguised alter ego who tries to escape the cycle of abuse of his home life and make a name for himself, co-starring his then-girlfriend Apollonia Cotero as the kid's love interest and Morris Day as Morris Day, the pimp-like lead of the rival act Morris Day in the Time. The film is most memorable for Prince in his screen debut, sharing his charisma, talent, and sex appeal with the world in those jaw-dropping numbers alongside his band, The Revolution. I love its musical legacy and Prince, of course, more than I do the film overall because I always found its misogyny a little tough to take at times, even though it definitely is trying to say something about abuse but it is a classic for a reason. So what are your thoughts on Purple Rain? Yeah, this is um 
this sounds like the most obvious thing to say in the world, but it's a print showcase. And I say that to mean that I'm with you. The plot, um, there's a lot of ridiculous misogyny. (laughs) Um, There aren't really surprises. A lot of it, um, I mean, a lot of it is incredibly affecting and moving, but it's kind of your classic melodramatic uh, come up story. Like all these films are about, fairly successful mid-level bands who are kind of right on the precipice of are, are they going to make it big or not yeah and this one is more tortured <laughs> about it, it. um and if it wasn't prince if it was an actor playing um a musician with kind of stock songs i i can't imagine we'd be talking about because no. there's nothing else <laughs> to really pull it out um yeah, print the the music is incredible, uh, of course, but just um, the charm uh, between Prince just being the moodiest, yes, <laughs> infuriating but still dreamy, uh, yeah, he tortured musician thing happening, yeah, and Morris Day is so mean in the I funniest yes. way. <laughs> And Apollonia just, it it seems like she was born five minutes before the film. She's just so open and naive and beautiful. Mm -hmm. And um, every time, like uh, when she starts getting involved uh, with the kid, Prince, um, he's like pretty annoying to her. And if he pulled that on me, I'd be like, this guy's really emotionally immature. I'm not going to waste my yeah. time on him. But she just laughs and smiles, which is probably mostly a male fantasy, but it mm-hmm. just works with them because her character does, she just seems so excited to finally strike out on her own and start making her own moves. That's a really um, good point. You know, the first time I saw this, of course, was like mid-90s in Minnesota. I'm like, that's not Lake Minnetonka. What is <laughs> And then I realized, like, what a jerk. Come on. Yeah. But she's just like, oh, whatever. And I thought, wow, okay. Hey, she's she's into Prince. Yeah, he's he's kind of the James Dean of the movie, very much. Yeah, I watched this with the commentary and they said, Yeah, she we had one take with that because it was like 20 below something yeah. like that oh i can't imagine. i was like it oh, is minnesota God. yeah yeah i love oh. that you're from there so yeah. you can you can speak to the authenticity yes yeah it's it's a complex uh movie because like it's not the kind of film i can just recommend mm-hmm. to people like oh yeah it's a fun 80s musical romp oh boy it's not no, you know, it's interesting you say that because uh, my friend Kate Gabrielle is kind of catching up. She's a big classic movie lover and she really hasn't seen a lot of like uh, movies that were contemporary or 80s and beyond. And so she's been watching all these. And so uh, she watched like Dirty Dancing and Footloose. She's like, what was going on in the 80s? These are some dark movies. She's like, you got um you know uh what's her name Lori Singer almost throwing herself in front of a train you have like abortions and things going it's like you know people playing chicken on tractors and almost dying and you know like the 80s were kind of dark and Purple Rain is one of those yeah yeah um I this is kind of off topic but I guess kind of connected Fast Times at Ridgemont High 
used yeah, yeah uh, I used to watch that on TBS every time they played it. If it was on, yeah. I was watching it. So I, I had seen an absurd amount of times. Eventually, I bought it on DVD, and I was like, okay. I, I'm in the mood to watch this. I put it on. I did not know there's an abortion subplot in that film because oh, it was completely seriously? cut out of the wow. TV cut. That so so funny. Oh <laughs> I was God. like, this movie makes so much more sense now, <laughs> but it's so much darker too. It is. Yeah. You know, it's like confession time. It's a great movie, but it's not one of those that I can watch like as much as other people like, oh, it's this laugh riot thing from the 80s. And I'm like, no, I, I mean, I'll watch, you know, some of the other ones, but Fast Times is a little bit more intense. Yeah, you got to be in the mood for it. I mean, there's wonderful stuff, but there is that whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess there was, again, I'm going to reference the commentary, which is pretty great, but they said, Originally with uh, Prince's parents, there was going to be a murder-suicide. That's what I thought I had heard. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny. They said, you know, if, if Prince had it his way, there'd be a lot more people dying in this movie. <laughs> yeah. So I think the melodramatic part is definitely to his taste. But yeah, they eventually changed that, I guess. A big reason they told them was they just did Star 80 and like Warner Brooks yeah. didn't want to be known as the murder-suicide studio. studio. I can see that. You know, it's interesting. I'm glad you brought up Star 80. I mean, weird reason, but it fits because when I was watching it this time, I hadn't seen this movie in forever. And this time when I watched it, of course, um, it's I've now seen all the Bob Fosse movies. And so that opening, you know, is it Let's Go Crazy? Is that how it opens? I think so. Mm -hmm. And there's this montage and the fast cuts. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this kind of feels like the beginning of all that jazz or some elements from uh, Cabaret, some of the editing with like Alan Heim, who was Bob Fosse. I think he, can't remember if he edited Lenny too, but like some of the Bob Fosse editing techniques are in this one. And then I read that uh, Fosse actually was impressed with uh, the editing of Purple Rain. And it makes sense that this is a well-edited movie, too, because it was made by an editor. So, yeah. Yeah, and he specifically said Cabaret was his biggest influence on it. So that you picked so that up cool. immediately. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it was interesting. I, I did not get the link to Star 80, but it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it's like, ooh. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that when it actually happened, so we can't back yeah. off that, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of darkness uh, in this movie. They're throwing chicks <laughs> in the garbage, you know. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was crazy, yes. Uh, but the performances, um, I can watch all of the Prince performances, like, again and again and again, especially that whole ending sequence, which is about... I don't know if it's like 13 or 15 minutes long. It's amazing. Yes. Do you have any favorite sequences? Purple Rain probably or? Yeah, Purple, that's a huge one. I yeah. get teary-eyed every single yeah. time. Um, I, I do, as, as much of a cad as he is in the film, I do love everything with Morse Day. I think he's so funny. He he's clearly so having a blast. Yes. Yeah, he almost and feels it like in his scenes he's just 
he's like playing it like a black exploitation film, basically. Yeah, yes, yes. Like you're so smarmy, but I love you. I want yeah. you to have <laughs> the sequel to be about you. I know it was kind of like it reminded me. People were talking about him this week, so it's in my frame of mind. But um, Don Cheadle in Devil uh, in a Blue Dress, like his character, where you're like you're basically you know a jerk, but you're stealing the movie away from the yep. star at times. <laughs> watch a whole movie about that guy yep um but i my favorite scene is when uh wendy and lisa who are are both musicians in the revolution um they keep giving them music and they kind of yeah they're not actresses but they were they were so fantastic and i think it worked for them because it felt almost like a scene from a documentary like yeah we're, if we're a band, you kind of need to treat us like this and please listen to it. And I think it's pretty cool of Prince to have portrayed himself as a complete asshole about yeah. this. Because apparently he was good at collaborating uh, yes. in real life. But, yeah. you know, as just someone who's like, no, the songs we have are fine. This is fine. <laughs> Even as that strange little scene uh, with the puppet. <laughs> Yeah, that was very strange. Or um, that he was willing to pretend that they were the ones that wrote. Uh, was it Purple Rain? I think so. And um, yeah, I, I like he gives them credit. And it's amazing when you realize like how quickly. I think I heard that he gave uh, Magnolia um, like 100 songs at the beginning yeah. of the first meeting. And then <laughs> God. Um, he saw him do purple rain and said you know it's like your bob dylan like ballad which i love because bob dylan's from minnesota too so that was kind of look at you (laughs) this cold weather creating these amazing musicians yeah (laughs) every once in a while yes um but yeah and then um what was the one he did in one day i think it was when doves cry he said we need one more song and (sighs) within a day like we it needs to hit xyz elements and prince turned it around in one day and it was completely produced in a day which is just bananas okay so one complaint i have about almost famous is that they make writing look very easy oh my like God, no. he turns his notes he's like no it's just my notes and the next day he has a perfect article that they <laughs> immediately love the next morning i'm like okay movie okay yeah. <laughs> but then you hear that about prince and then i just start questioning myself <laughs> Oh, no. Same thing. Yeah. Some stuff I've written super fast and then other stuff. No. But yeah, I get a kick out of the old technology jokes, though. It almost only takes 18 minutes. (laughs) minutes A mojo. Like the way that Terry Chen says it. Like they have a mojo. Yeah. He, yeah, his his role is just incredible. (laughs) Some of the best phone acting I think I've ever seen. (laughs) When my lady gets, yeah. Yeah. And just Rain Wilson silently reacting in his mustache. Oh my God. It's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. It's great. But you know, you were pointing out at the beginning of the purple rain conversation is how all of these movies really kind of follow people like mid-level bands or starting out and then getting big. And I mean, Stephanie, right there, you kind of have like a think piece about these films you can pitch to Rolling Stone. Yeah, if you guys are listening, it is a, yes. a think piece about mid-level bands. Um, <laughs> On film, and Stephanie's your girl, yeah. Dealing with uh, cold weather, 
<laughs> and um, state fairs. Yes. And um, near plane accidents. So uh, hit me up if you'd like to hear about that. Yeah, all kinds of drama. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, well, this was so much fun. Are there any other um, points you want to get across about Purple Rain or any of these movies? Uh, no, this is just really fun. Um, and it was interesting. You know, we cover the different decades with these, but um, yeah. it was interesting to see uh, Purple Rain. As you mentioned, that was a contemporary movie about time and the other ones were kind of rose colored glasses on past decades. So a little bit. Yeah, uh, yeah the, the energy is definitely different. And it does make me more charitable towards uh, Purple Rain's weaker spots because they were yeah. in the thick of it. Prince was at that incredible time in his career. And yeah. who knows what that kind of headspace is like. I certainly yeah. don't. Um, yeah. So it, it's just so interesting uh, seeing that. all They all had different Achilles heels. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's just really fun. And I, I don't think I've been watching movies about music lately. And this kind of reignited my love for that. So I think I'm going to be hunting down some favorites and new discoveries. Oh, absolutely. I'm excited to hear it. My favorite thing about doing this is it's like I'm taking a different film survey course almost every week. So <laughs> yeah, and it's like I'm forcing someone to be in a new film club with me every week. Like, Stephanie, we're watching these kind of. <laughs> so yeah, this is fun. Are there any other music movies you want to give a shout out to that people listening should maybe check out or you said new discoveries but anything you want to recommend uh, off the top of my head uh grace of my heart oh i love that film yes <laughs> do it uh, check that out <laughs> bird uh streets oh, of fire yes. kind of is fabulous yes. stains oh love and mercy oh my goodness love and yes. mercy so good. Probably John Cusack's <laughs> best performances. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I would say Josie and the Pussycats, Rock and Roll High School, if you want some lighter, fun, fun ones. Yeah. Um, oh, and it, it's not uh, like the greatest movie I've ever seen, but I do really like it, especially because they thought to make Joan Jett Michael J. Fox's sister in it, The Light of Day. It's also oh, fun 80s yes. one. That's a good one to recommend. Yeah, it's a deep cut. I love it. Yeah. Well, it's a B-side, you know? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> well, Stephanie, this was so much fun. I really appreciated talking to you. No, this, this was so fun. Thank you so much for having me again. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.